Hello, and welcome to The Space Above Us. Episode 53, Skylab, a home in space. Last time, we took a look back at the Apollo program. How we got there, what the missions did, how the flights fit together, and what the repercussions were for history. The last lunar landing mission provided a nice clean point in the narrative to look back and reflect as NASA retooled for the upcoming space shuttle era. Except, history doesn't always provide a nice clean narrative, because Apollo isn't actually over. No, between the final lunar landing and the first flight of Space Shuttle Columbia were four remarkable flights that are often overlooked, even by many spaceflight enthusiasts. If I'm being honest, I must include myself in that group. Which is really a shame, because the more I have learned about the next four flights, the more I realized I'd been missing out on something truly special. Welcome to Apollo Applications. Apollo Applications was created with the idea of leveraging all of the great spaceflight hardware that was being created for the Apollo lunar landing flights and using them for other missions. Sort of spin-off missions. It was also intended to keep up momentum in the space program. It's easy to forget, but by the time astronauts are actually flying, a lot of the people involved in the creation of their vehicles had completed their work years beforehand. The bulk of development for the Saturn V and its engines would be done years before Armstrong set foot in the Sea of Tranquility, for instance. NASA wanted to make sure that it was continuing to benefit from the broad foundation of experience and expertise it had so laboriously built. As I've alluded to earlier, a bunch of interesting stuff was proposed as part of Apollo applications, and some of the later additions to the astronaut corps were already working on the potential missions. I've been kicking around an idea for an episode on hypothetical or cancelled missions at some point, but for now our focus will be on the one program that made the cut, Skylab, America's first space station. The idea of a space station had been popular among certain circles of spaceflight pioneers for years. One of the more prominent advocates was Werner von Braun himself, who helped bring the concept to the public in a series of lengthy magazine articles in the 1950s. Advocates envisioned numerous large space stations, all crewed by dozens of people, performing a variety of tasks. Scientists, meteorologists, communication specialists, and of course, reconnaissance personnel, would make up these giant crews with a continuous presence in space. But in an ironic twist of fate, the rapid progression of technology removed the necessity for a large space station before it was possible to build one. The original visions of dozens of meteorologists and scientists living in space were eventually replaced by uncrewed spacecraft using newly miniaturized electronics, cameras, and sensors, all for a fraction of the cost and effort. Maybe the giant spinning wheels of 2001 A Space Odyssey weren't required to make weather predictions or photograph large swaths of the Earth, but there was still value in building a space station. There were tons of open questions that could still best be answered by humans in orbit. Compared to robots, humans are cheap and easy to train. This meant that you didn't need to make robotic solutions for every experiment. Just tell the astronaut to do it for you. And even the automated bits could be made more cheaply and simply if there's a human around to intervene when things go wrong. A lot of the complexity of uncrewed systems in space relates to the fact that they have to do everything perfectly or literally risk tumbling out of control. An analogy I like to illustrate this point is imagine how long it would take for a person to learn how to cook an omelet. Now how long do you think it would take to build a robot to do the same task? And what about if at the last minute you decide that it also has to be able to make bacon? Easy for a flexible and clever human. 
hard for a rigid and pre-programmed robot. And on top of just making nominal operations easier, humans are also able to come up with nuanced and complex solutions to really serious problems. Problems that may not have been envisioned ahead of time and that would doom an automated spacecraft. Plus, there's the humans themselves. While the date of such a journey was in question, NASA planned to someday send people to other planets. Such a trip would require an extended period in deep space, with exposure to radiation, psychological strains, and unless they wanted to bring some huge spinning rings, weightlessness. The question of how long bouts of weightlessness would affect the human body needed to be answered, and remedies to any resulting problems needed to be invented. So a space station crew presented a great scientific opportunity. It was for all of these reasons that the idea of a space station started to be seriously pursued in the early to mid-1960s. Support was especially strong at the Marshall Space Center, home of Warner Von Braun and the workforce that built the completed early in the Apollo program, Saturn Rockets. Hey, it's just like those things I just talked about. Now you may be wondering, what in the world do a bunch of engineers who build booster rockets know about making space stations? Ah, more than you might think, because they cheated a little. Or were clever and resourceful, take your pick. Rather than building a brand new spacecraft from scratch to serve as a station, the folks down at Marshall had the idea of using one of the upper stages of a rocket. At first glance, it seemed a little crazy, but then as you start to think about it, the idea makes more and more sense. The upper stages of the Saturn rockets burned hydrogen and oxygen, so the propellants weren't the horrifically nasty hypergolic fuels of the Gemini days. You couldn't put all of the equipment in there, but you could certainly build stuff like floors and other structure into the tank itself. It was big and open, which left lots of room for experiments and a lack of claustrophobia on long flights. But more importantly, it was already in space. It was a total freebie with regards to the energy required to get the thing into orbit. But it also wouldn't be trivial to set up. Modifications would have to be made and equipment would have to be installed all while in orbit, thus beginning the great debate of wet workshop versus dry workshop. The idea I just talked about was called the wet workshop, so-called because the tank where the astronauts would spend their time would start off full of propellant, so wet. An alternative was a dry workshop, where everything was just ready to go. It'd still be built out of a rocket's upper stage, but it would just be a payload, not filled with propellant and used as part of the propulsion system. It made it a lot easier to fill full of stuff like science experiments, supplies for the crew, and other equipment. It also meant that no modifications would need to be made in space. The cost was that you'd need a bigger rocket to get it into orbit in the first place, since the station was now just dead weight. For a long time, it looked like the wet workshop would win out. It seemed to be cheaper and more pragmatic. But then they got to experimenting. It was around this time that astronauts on Project Gemini discovered that extravehicular activity, or spacewalks, or EVAs, were actually a heck of a lot harder than anticipated. Maybe modifying the tank into a habitable space wouldn't be all that feasible after all. One of the ways NASA decided to figure it out was with a neutral buoyancy pool, which would allow divers to move like spacewalkers and practice the required techniques. And when I say NASA decided, I really mean Werner Von Braun decided, since he just sort of went for it without asking. In fact, to get around some of the restrictions around building new facilities, Von Braun categorized the massive pool as quote-unquote 
portable equipment, complete with a small government tag on the side labeling it as such. Anyway, in these pools, divers could wear simulated spacesuits that were precisely balanced to mimic the effects of weightlessness. It wasn't perfect, but it provided an extremely useful simulation of EVAs down on Earth. In the process, they learned that the planned modifications were way more complex than the current state of EVA technology could handle. In fact, both Von Braun and George Miller, the head of the human spaceflight program at the time, personally took a dive in the neutral buoyancy pool to try it out for themselves. The results from the pool piled on with the other pros and cons, and NASA decided to go with a dry workshop. The spacecraft that would eventually be dubbed Skylab was really starting to come together now as the parameters fell into place. It would be created out of a modified S-4B Saturn upper stage. This was either the second stage on a Saturn 1B rocket or the third stage on a Saturn 5, responsible for kicking the Apollo stack from low Earth orbit out to the moon. As a dry workshop, it would launch with all of the food, water, equipment, experiments, clothes, sleeping bags, cameras, and everything else the astronauts would require. And as a big, heavy S-4B, it would launch atop an S-1C first stage and an S-2 second stage, essentially making the entire vehicle a Saturn V with a weirdo upper stage. The last ever Saturn V launch. Those first two stages would deposit Skylab into an orbit inclined 50 degrees to the Earth's equator and roughly 272 miles in altitude. These numbers were not arrived at easily. Orbit design is all about compromises between mission requirements and operational realities. The most efficient launch would result in an inclination that was the same as the launch site's latitude, which in this case with the Kennedy Space Center would be about 28.5 degrees. But that would also mean that Skylab would never go further north than Florida, and never go further south than the southernmost tip of Brazil. That's actually a pretty narrow band around the equator. To see more of the Earth, you want a higher inclination. 50 degrees was about as high an inclination as you could get out of Florida without flying over populated areas, so 50 degrees it was. Now Skylab could fly over everything as far north as Canada, and almost as far south as the southernmost tip of South America. The altitude, too, was a compromise. For lower drag, and thus a longer-lived orbit, you want to be as high as possible. But if you're operating an Earth-observing sensor, you want to be as low as possible. There's a bunch of conflicts like this. The final orbit was somewhere in the middle. It was also carefully chosen so that every 71 revolutions, which took five days or so, its ground track would repeat, allowing repeat observations of the same points on Earth. It also had the nice effect of opening up a launch window every five days to go to visit the station. Once on orbit, Skylab had four primary objectives. To determine people's ability to live and work in space for extended periods. To extend the science of solar astronomy beyond the limits of Earth-based observations. To develop improved techniques for surveying Earth resources from space and to increase humanity's knowledge in a variety of other scientific and technological regimes. These objectives would be completed by three crews of three astronauts each over the course of about a year. The first crew would spend 28 days in space, with the second and third crews aiming for 58 days. Their new home away from home would be the biggest spacecraft ever built up to that time, by a lot. At a whopping 77,000 kilograms, 
it was over 60% heavier than the CSM-LEM stack sent out to the moon. It was also 42 times more mass than Alan Shepard's Mercury capsule Freedom 7. Measured lengthwise, Skylab was 82 feet, a little more than a tennis court. It was 22 feet wide, but with both solar arrays extended, it would be 90 feet, a little less than a basketball court. And once in its orbital configuration, it was about 36 feet tall, which is the length of some sort of sport-related court, I'm sure. It wasn't just one giant spacecraft, either. It was made out of discrete parts assembled into what was called the cluster. Let's start at the bottom, as seen in the launch pad, and work our way up. The single largest part of Skylab was the orbital workshop. This was the converted S-4B. At the bottom of the workshop was a large radiator for getting rid of extra heat, a tricky task in space. On either side would be two large solar arrays, which would provide the majority of the station's electricity. Up until this point, the U.S. had depended on fuel cells and batteries to power its human space missions, but Skylab's duration was far too long to make that really doable. Instead, we get NASA's first human spacecraft powered by solar panels. Alongside the main body of the S-4B was a thermal and micrometeoroid shield. This would start off pressed up against Skylab during launch, and once in space, it would pop out with a gap of a few inches between the two. The idea here was that if a tiny piece of debris or dust hit the shield, it would punch a tiny hole in the shield, vaporize, and then not punch a hole in Skylab itself. It also helped keep the punishing heat of the sun from beating down directly on the side of the orbital workshop, so the shield was pretty important. Moving inside was the tank normally used to store liquid oxygen. Instead, this was used as a giant trash barrel so the crew could easily dispose of stuff, but not just send it drifting off to become orbital debris. Next was the much larger liquid hydrogen tank, which became the main workshop. The interior of the orbital workshop was almost too big. At over 300 cubic meters, the orbital workshop on its own was almost one-third the habitable volume of the entire International Space Station. The layout of the workshop was pretty interesting. Rather than committing to making it have a defined up or down like a structure on Earth, or making it a full-on anything-goes spacecraft, it was a bit of a mix. At the quote-unquote bottom of the workshop was what might look like a floor of a normal building. It had a floor, a ceiling, and a number of smaller rooms. The smaller rooms served a few functions. Three were crew quarters, where the crew could hang their sleeping bag and store personal effects and have a little privacy. A ward room was available where the crew could gather around and eat their meals. There was even a special table that came equipped with various lids and magnets and such to allow a relatively normal kitchen table experience. The ward room also had a window, which is always nice. Next to that was a bathroom. Yes, that's right, no more awkward hoses and even more awkward plastic bags. Skylab got a bathroom with a proper toilet, or as proper as you can get in space. The toilet used airflow to do what gravity does on Earth. Quite a step up from the Gemini days. Also on this main floor were a couple of health-related experiments we'll get into later, and an airlock for putting stuff into the waste tank. Moving upstairs, things opened up quite a bit. The whole upper part of the workshop was left as open as possible to facilitate stuff like suit mobility tests, and just to see how the crew handled such a large open area. There was some initial concern that astronauts might get stranded in the middle, so a long pole was installed down the center of the workshop. 
the, the crews quickly took that down when they realized that it just got in the way more than anything else. The walls in this area were lined with lockers and equipment used for all the experiments the crew would perform. The floor of this area, and of the main floor below, was a triangular grid. This was actually a holdover from the wet workshop days. Such a floor could be installed inside a live hydrogen tank without interfering with its operations. The triangle pattern was kept so that the crew could clip in with special shoes and work somewhere without drifting away. Moving up through the top hatch of the orbital workshop, we find the airlock module. Much of the wiring and utility functions of the spacecraft were routed through the airlock module, making it pretty critical. It was also critical because with so many EVAs planned during Skylab's mission, it would be completely impractical to fully depressurize the entire station every time. Instead, hatches on either end of the airlock module could be sealed, and then the comparatively small airlock would be depressurized. Something I found completely hilarious, if eminently practical, was that the exterior door of the airlock module was just an old door from Project Gemini. I mean, it's literally just a Gemini door. But I suppose if it works, it works. Continuing our journey upwards, we get to the multiple docking adapter. This module had not one, but two docking ports for the Apollo CSM. One on the end, in the axial direction, and one on the side. The idea here was that it was possible some sort of rescue mission might be required, so it would be best to provide a redundant docking hatch just in case. The multiple docking adapter, or MDA as it quickly became known, also housed a number of controls for some of the scientific equipment on board. If the bottom of the orbital workshop was designed to resemble a normal room on Earth, the MDA was the opposite. There was no defined up or down, so the walls were all just covered in equipment, controls, and storage. Again, a big part of Skylab's mission was to learn how to live in space for long durations. No one knew if a 0G or 1G design would be the most comfortable for the astronauts, so they may as well try both. Attached to the side of the MDA, with a Kerbal-esque pile of struts, was the Apollo Telescope Mount. The Apollo Telescope Mount, or ATM, was almost an independent spacecraft in some ways. In fact, some of the early designs had this bizarre concept of the ATM literally separating from the main body of the station and only being connected with a tether. To what end, I'm not really sure. The ATM was the heart of the space science aspect of Skylab. It was stuffed full of specialized cameras, optical elements, sensors, and other science gizmos. It also had its own independent set of solar arrays. Four lengthy arrays would extend out the side once in space, giving the ATM a sort of flower-like appearance. The exterior path between the airlock module and the ATM had a number of handles and grips for the crews to clamber out there and retrieve data and replace film canisters. The ATM sort of freaks me out, because in order to fit in the payload shroud, it had to be launched in line with the rest of the cluster, that is, directly above the MDA. Once on orbit, a mechanical nightmare of struts and linkages would shift the ATM 90 degrees over to the side of the MDA. I'm not totally sure how it was deployed, so maybe mechanical nightmare is a bit harsh, but what's scary about this is it absolutely had to work. If the ATM got stuck, there'd be no way to access the primary docking port, leaving only one port open, preventing a possible rescue mission, and thus making the whole thing too risky. Game over. But it ended up working just fine, so I guess I built up all that foreshadowing for nothing. The ATM also represents another first for NASA human spaceflight. 
Just like how Skylab would be the first flight with a crew to use solar arrays instead of batteries and fuel cells, it would also be the first to use control moment gyros, or CMGs, which happen to be located in the ATM. Are we having fun with acronyms yet? CMGs are basically big, heavy gyroscopes that could be spun at varying speeds in order to rotate the spacecraft in place, and would provide the primary attitude control for Skylab. It also had traditional thrusters in the imaginatively named Thruster Attitude Control System, or TACs, but these had a limited fuel supply. CMGs only required electricity, so as long as you had power and your CMGs were still spinning, you could point the spacecraft wherever you wanted. They also allowed for finer-grained attitude control, the kind required by specialized science equipment. Each gyro was almost 2 feet wide, weighed over 150 pounds, and spun at around 9,000 rotations per minute. If you've ever done that high school physics experiment where you sit on a swivel chair, hold a spinning bike wheel, rotate the wheel, and find yourself spinning in response, you get how a CMG works. If you haven't, go find yourself a swivel chair and a bike wheel. It's pretty cool. The only thing left was the Apollo Command and Service Module, which would typically dock at the top of the multiple docking adapter. This would launch on a smaller, but still sizable, Saturn 1B rocket and ferry the crew to the orbiting Skylab. It remained docked to Skylab for the duration of each mission, but wasn't really involved in day-to-day -day operations. However, it could be used for a quick escape if things went wrong, or for a bit of privacy when talking to family members down on Earth. Any one of these segments would be a complex and impressive bit of space hardware in its own right. When combined together, they became something more than the sum of their parts. They became America's first space station. Next time, we'll drill down a little more and look at some of the specific experiments Skylab would be flying and what sensors it would be using in its sun, space, and Earth-oriented observations. Then we'll pack the whole thing up, stick it on top of a Saturn V, and send it on its way. Just be sure to hang on tight as we pass through Mach 1. It can get a little bumpy, but we wouldn't want you to lose anything important. Add Astra catch you on the next pass.